0: I'm sorry, I have a lot of stuff up here. <laughs> all right, we're in the book of Galatians, chapter 2. If you'd like to turn there this morning, Galatians, chapter 2. You know, as I was thinking about this portion of scripture this week, I I've thought about all the things that I, I've done in my past. You know, I, I know who you are in Christ today. If you're a Christian, you know that I'm a child of God. I'm blood-bought by, by the power of the Lamb. I belong to Him, and I am His, and He is mine. Who were you? Who were you? Well, when I was 10, I was a punk. When I was 17 and 16, I was a rhythm guitar player in a rock and roll band that toured Europe. And after that, I was an aerospace engineer for a while. Then I was an industrial millwright for Firestone Tire and Rubber Plant. Busted tires in my uncle's gas station and pumped gas from 4 to midnight in New York City and lived to tell about it. I was a welder, I was a motorcycle mechanic. I raced motorcycles professionally for a short time. I've been a Colorado Springs fire department, paramedic, and firefighter. I've been a whole lot of things. It's what I did, it's not who I am. It's what I did. There's a lot of you that do things because you need to survive pay your bills, put food on the table. That does not define who you are. You may look back and say, I used to be a druggie, or I was in and out of prison. I, I did a lot of really, really terrible things. We all did. But we only differ in kind and degree. We all have things in our past that we're ashamed of. And by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, I've been forgiven. That may not be, I'm looking back, you go, yeah, at times, terrible things. And at other times, God brought me to my knees and told me He loved me and He saved me from my sins. When I stand before you this morning as a child of God, I'm telling you, He's in the business of turning lives around. That's what he does. So what I do for a living is one thing, but it does not define who I am. I must always remember that apart from what I do to put beans and weenies on the table, I am a child of God. Don't be tied to a past, especially a dysfunctional past. That's not you. That's who you were, but not who you are by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can share that past with people and then tell them how good God is to have brought you out of that past, that you're washed, you're cleansed, you're forgiven. That's the good news. That's the good news that God had called this terrorist named Saul who was rabidly opposed to the early church, doing everything he could to make their life miserable, persecuting them and putting their their people in, in jail and hounding them at every turn. And Paul looks back and says, Well, that's who I was. That's not who I am. And because of his past, some people were always dogging him, questioning the legitimacy of his turnaround. I can remember the first time I got saved, I called an old old friend of mine that I'd known in high school, and we used to do high school things together. And I, I said, "Hey, I hear you're in the Navy. You're down in Coronado, and I'd l- like to come see you." He goes, yeah, I'd love to have you come on down here. You know, me and my living girlfriend. We'd love to love to have you down here. And he said, "What are you doing for a living now?" And I said, "Well, I, I'm I'm going to seminary. I'm going to be a pastor." I, I, on the other end of the line, I heard the most hysterical laughter I've ever heard in my life. And he goes, "That's the best joke I've heard in a long time." <laughs> you went through a pastor, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, and I'm I'm Peter Cottontail. <laughs> He thought that was hilarious, and uh, I went down there and shared the gospel with him. You know, I had the privilege of telling him who I was, but who I'd become. I'm still a work in progress, as we all are. I don't judge myself. I know I fall short. I don't need anybody to remind me of that. But I am who I am by the grace of God. His call is upon my life. He has done radical things in on and through me over these many years I've been saved. But I sometimes am able to look back, not for the sake of glorifying my past, but for glorifying God, that that is not my present. I've been forgiven. I've been washed. I've been cleansed. It's like yesterday I was over at my daughter's house and up to my eyeballs in stucco mix. I don't know if you've ever worked with stucco, but you better get it off of you pretty quick or it sets up forever, evers and, and it's yours for life. You know, that's kind of like sinners that come to the throne of grace. He, he picks you up out of the mud and the muck and the mire and the things that stick to you. And over the course of the rest of your life, he washes you clean. You can get everything but, but uh, oil-based latex off your hands with just warm water and soap. And that's kind of what Jesus did for us. It, all the dirt just came off, all the dysfunctional past. So I don't talk about my past a lot. I've already shared things with you this morning. You go, no way. I'll bet Pastor Jim never did drugs. I'll bet you were perfect too. Pastor Jim did all sorts of things in the 60s that hippie kids did because we didn't know any better. People told us about drugs back then, but very few people were telling us about Jesus. And that's what I needed most, and I didn't even know it until somebody told me about Jesus. Paul has that same testimony to share. And after his conversion, people mocked and made fun of, oh, he couldn't be saved. We remember who the old guy was. And yet God had done a new work in his life. And then when he would tell them he was now an apostle, (laughs) an apostle? Are you kidding? You wouldn't even make a good tax collector. So Paul in verse 1 of chapter 2 begins answering his critics as well as sharing his testimony. How he had come to to faith. That continues out of chapter 1, the previous context. But Paul says here, 14 years later, that is after his conversion. Paul's in his mid-40s, early 50s by now. Fourteen years after my conversion, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation that is from God, a revelation, and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Am what I doing, is it correct or not? Am I theologically in line with the Scriptures as you understand them? And yet, not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Paul is not a spring chicken anymore, and he had done things in his past that he was ashamed of, but that did not discredit who he was in Christ Jesus, nor detract from God's calling upon his life. There are any number of Christians that feel like, I am so dirty and my past so discolored, God couldn't possibly use me. God couldn't use me in Sunday school or nursery or a pastor or a teacher or a helper. God couldn't use me to share the gospel. You don't know what my past is. It's your past. If you're a believer in Christ Jesus, that may have been who you were, but not who you are now. You're a child of God. You walk on the tops of the clouds and Satan is beneath your feet. That's who you really are. But there will always be that voice of condemnation, either from men or demons, that tells you, who do you think you are? It's a lie from the pit of hell. Understand that. You are are no limitation to what God can do through you. Your past, you, you may have the intellect of a shoelace and God can still use you. You may be 100 years old and God is just getting started in your life. It's unimaginable what God can do through one person whose life is totally surrendered to Him. And there's nothing that keeps you from being that person. You are a person of infinite value in His eyes. He esteems you so much, He allowed His Son to bleed and die to secure your salvation. That's how much God thinks of you. Don't let others bring you down. Don't let them question whether God can use you or not. Man does not validate at best. Man can confirm what God has already ordained. I look to him to speak his word into my life. Paul is writing the Galatian churches, the half dozen or so churches in south central Turkey because he had established them on his missionary, his first missionary trip. We read about his conversion in in Acts chapter 15, his first visit to Jerusalem after his conversion. It says that he he had stayed with Peter for the first 15 days, and I'll bet he learned an awful lot. I remember the first time I sat in Pastor Chuck Smith's office. He's the guy that God used to, to birth this movement called Calvary Chapels, and I sat across from his desk, and I felt so intimidated And yet he was a godly and a gentle man, imperfect, but a man that God had greatly used. But the wisdom just kind of oozed from him. you ever been in the presence of those kind of people where you just go, dude. And you're just intimidated. You got nothing. You got nothing. And you know it. And you know that they know it. (laughs) It can be intimidating. Sitting in front of Peter. And yet, I don't think that Peter came across as uppity or spiritually superior or snobbish. Peter had his fair share of failures too, didn't he? A fisherman that had enjoyed a mixed bag of success in his old days, but he can't say, I was the greatest fisherman ever born to man. When Christ called him, Jesus said, come and I'll make you fishers of men, not fish. I think... That his failures kept him humble the rest of his life. And in tow, Paul brings with him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Why? Because everybody needs encouragement once in a while. Amen? Everybody needs a Barnabas in their life. I hope to be that Barnabas every once in a while on Sundays or Wednesdays when I get a chance to talk to you. I want to be that Barnabas. I want to speak into your life. I want to tell you God loves you. I think you're a wonderful person. God is Holy Spirit. is all over you. He's got great things for you now and in the future. And what lies ahead in glory, you can't even imagine. I want to be that son of encouragement. He was obviously one of the leaders in the church there at, at Antioch, and he had accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey. His given name, you'll remember, was Joseph, but they called him Barney instead. Barnabas, you're such an encourager. So the name stuck. He was a Levite, a priest from the island of Cyprus. And Paul says there in verse 2, I received this calling of God upon my life by direct revelation. There are many ways that God can communicate his will to you. He can give you dreams and visions. You need to be open to that. He can speak into your heart something that somebody else says, a brother or sister in the faith or a pastor, teacher, leader, God can use anybody to speak into your life. But we have to be able to discern when God is speaking to us. He can speak through His Word, obviously. So I'm in His Word as often as I can get there. His Holy Spirit will sometimes reveal things to us. Sometimes you may have a dream. Other times you may just kind of... He's zoning out, and you've got this mental image of a picture in your mind, and you go, and God is speaking to you in that experience, in that moment, in ways that are unique to you. Wouldn't mean a hill of beans to anybody else. God has very unique ways to get our attention, doesn't He? I'll I'll never forget the time my wife woke up in the middle of of the night uh, to the smell of brownies thinking that she'd left something in the oven, and it was God calling her downstairs to spend some time with him. Now, if he was calling me with food, it wouldn't be brownies, maybe hot dogs. Hot dogs would be fine. I'd wake up to that smell in a heartbeat, a cup of fresh coffee. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how God spoke to my wife. He met me on an airplane one time coming back from a pastor's conference. I'm one of those red-eye flights, and I'm just kind of looking out at the dark evening, for lights below at 35,000 feet and the low cabin lights were on, it was real kind of dim in there and all of a sudden God showed up in the cabin with me and everything just went and there was God and I couldn't breathe and I felt the power of his presence and he spoke to me and Nobody else could hear or see anything, but I felt like I had an apple in my throat that was stuck there. I I didn't feel like I could breathe. It felt like he just sucked all the air out of the room, and his presence was absolutely overwhelming. He'd have put me on my face if I could have got out of my seatbelt and not get yelled at by the stewardess, but it's good. And I'm looking out the window having this major encounter with God out of the corner of my eye. Kathy's snoozing, and I'm going, how can you sleep at a time like this? It wasn't God meeting her. God was revealing himself, that's the word that Paul uses here, God was revealing himself to me in a way that was unique to me. He knew what I needed. These things happen episodically, it doesn't happen all the time, because happening every once in a while makes it a very special encounter. But all of my sons and daughters, my kids, grandkids, they have had dreams and visions and thoughts from the Lord and powerful encounters that validate our faith. Our faith isn't there because of those things, but because of our faith, those things follow. Did you get the order correct? You seek after God, this stuff comes with it later on. If you're open to it, some people say, well, there's things I'm open to and there's things I'm not. Let me just ask you this. Are you open to the Word of God? If you are, then anything that is found in the Word of God God may want to plant in your life only if you're open, only if you're asking and seeking and knocking. Then God can do something with you that's totally unique to you. But God will meet you right where you're at and equip you for whatever lies ahead. But you've got to be open. I know that some of you came out of uh, perhaps a religious excess background of one denomination or another, and they questioned whether you were saved because you couldn't speak in tongues, and you couldn't convince them by babbling that you had actually spoken in legitimate tongues, and so you've questioned your salvation your whole life. Man, I wish I had the gift of tongues. I wanted the gift of tongues so bad from, from 1972 when I got saved to the present day, I'm still praying for the gift of tongues. So when I had to go off to seminary early while Kathy was back here selling the house, she's praying earnestly for me when I called her one night, and guess what? She bows on at the foot of the bed, and bingo, jingo, she gets baptized with the Holy Spirit of God and has the gift of tongues. I'm going, you got what? Are you kidding me? You didn't even ask. In fact, she had said, Lord, don't want the gift of tongues, causes division, The Baptists hate it and think it's of the devil, and and these other guys, the Presbyterians, well, they don't even know the Bible is the Word of God. And then there's other people who say, well, you're not saved unless you speak in tongues. I don't want anything to do with tongues. She had said that several times to God. And so he gives her the gift of tongues. And I'm going, well, that's not fair. I asked for the gift of tongues. What about me? He wants them too. God gave it to Kathy to pray for me. It's not the gift that I needed. What God gave me was the gift to, uh, to be a pastor teacher by the will of God. So he gave me a love for history and got me through seminary in the original languages. And, and I love studying. I love, I crave studying. My greatest frustration is I only get to give you about 1% of what he gave me. And I can't seem to just vocalize all that God has put in my heart to share with you guys because it's life-changing stuff. But that's God's unique call upon my life. Was I open to it? Absolutely. I was so desperate to get the gift of tongues at one point in time in my life. I had Chuck Smith and Raul Reese and Greg Laurie and Mike McIntosh. All of them lay hands on me at a pastor's conference. And they prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And they were whacking and they were beating and they were pushing and they were playing their hands. You know, and what happened? Nothing. Nothing. And then one of those five men, which are some of the wisest men I've ever met in my life, said, you now possess the spiritual gifts that God has for you in this season in your life. Give God the glory. Use those, spe- those spiritual gifts. It was the gift of being a pastor and a teacher. I didn't realize it at the time. But I've been spending the rest of my life finding contentment in what I have been given who I am, not what I don't have. Are you content? Are you hungry for God? Are you asking, seeking, and knocking, but then walking away content with who you are, where you are, the fact that He loves you, and He's filled you with His Holy Spirit. Thus, He has gifted you with spiritual gifts, spiritual fruit of His Holy Spirit. And you know all them, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You've got all the ammunition you need to do the will and work of God in this life now. Believe it. Believe it. Oh, I wish I was seminary trained. No, you don't. You ever been there? Pastor Chuck used to call it cemetery for a reason. People go there to die spiritually. You know, the seminary can crank out some really good Pharisees. But if you're not called to go there, that's the place you should run from the hardest. Be the person that God has called you to be. Let God be God and give Him glory and honor and praise when He reveals Himself to you. You just want to highlight that word there in in verse 2, Revelation. It's the word apocalypsis. The same book of the Bible, Revelation is called the apocalypsis of Christ Jesus to John on the island of Patmos. But be open to God speaking to you through his word, through prayer, the leading of his Holy Spirit, your spouse speaking to you, a friend. You know, somebody may come up to you in church someday and go, you know, brother, God has just really laid on my heart something I'd like to share with you. I really see this in your life or consider that or a variety of other things. But you have to be open. If you're not open, you know what's going to happen? Nothing. If you're not hungry... For God, for his presence, for the knowledge of his will, nothing will happen. If you're not asking and seeking and knocking like Jesus commanded in Matthew chapter 7, nothing will happen. So if you're not walking in the supernatural today, why? The flesh, the natural gets in the way. Satan ties you up in knots of busyness. Oh, an excuse. and we know our busyness is an excuse. We already know that in our heads, in our hearts. We know it. But it's an excuse where you consistently hide behind when we know that we've always got time for God. He always has time for us. Don't let Satan trap you in that spiral downward of tyranny to the urgent, if you will. Paul spoke privately to these apostles because he's looking for them to speak into him life. Words of life, words of encouragement, words of affirmation. That's why Paul would write the Ephesian church later and say, Don't say anything unless it builds up, encourages, and edifies. That's the test. Don't let anything else come out of your mouth. Criticism is natural to the flesh. It is not natural to the spirit. Don't walk in the flesh. This is pretty juvenile right now. I know you know this, but sometimes you struggle with doing this. In fact, I dare say I don't teach you anything that you don't already know. But sometimes it's good to be brought to your attention by a a pastor who you allow to speak into your life because while you may know it, It's not intellectual ascent that gets you anywhere in the kingdom of God. It's surrender to his will, led of his spirit, guided by his word, openness to spiritual things, and turning your back on the unspiritual things of this world that will swallow you up. Paul, in other words, just needed a little confirmation. I did too. I remember when God called me to be a pastor. I looked over my pastor and I said, (laughs) my chances of becoming the Easter bunny are better. I needed some confirmation. So I talked to my pastor in town, and I told him my whole life story and what God had done by way of calling my life. And he says, well, God's obviously called you to be a pastor teacher. And I went to my home fellowship leader. I was teaching over there, and, but the host of the place, godly, godly man. And he spoke into my life, and he says, God's obviously called you to be a pastor teacher. So I thought, okay, I'm going to make the trip to Jerusalem and talk to Peter. For me, that was a trip to Costa Mesa, California to talk to Chuck Smith. He was booked out six months, so I said, okay. So I drove my little beater car down there Uh, six months later, and I showed up in his office, and and I said, okay, here is my whole life story. Do you think that God could use me? Is there any possibility? He goes, absolutely. And I said, well, here's what happened to me by way of calling do you think that God could, despite all of my sins and my past, do you think that he could call me to be a, a pastor teacher? And he said, absolutely. The call of God to be a pastor teacher is on your heart and mind. I said, what do I do now? And he said, for you, seminary. I said, what? I've heard you mock it from the pulpit and call it cemetery, but you want me to go? And he said, for every 12 fishermen and group of tax collectors and zealots and weirdos, there's always one Apostle Paul. God has called you, Jim, to go to seminary. Blew me away. Because that's exactly what God had laid on my heart. But I needed some confirmation. Confirmation. Sometimes you need to do that. When you're looking for confirmation, when you're looking for an affirmation of God's will in your life, speak to the most spiritually mature person you know. Not the person who's been saved the longest, not the oldest person you know, but the most spiritually mature person that you know, and get wise counsel and prayer from that person. It doesn't matter if you're physically related to them or not. But you're looking for maturity. That's what Paul did in hunting down Peter. He didn't hunt down the person that was most like him. He didn't hunt down a Pharisee or a rabbinically trained smart guy from seminary. He ran down the most godly man he knew to affirm God's call on his life. Gideon needed confirmation. Paul did. Sometimes you and I do as well. He says in verse 3, not even Titus, who was with me, a a Greek believer, was compelled to be circumcised when I went up to see the, the leadership in the church at Jerusalem, even though he was a Greek. They didn't bring up any of this Jewish nonsense that the Judaizers do. When the Judaizers came in on Paul's heel after he had won these Gentile converts over and they were free in Christ Jesus, Jewish Christians would come in behind him, undermine the simplicity of the gospel and say, well, you know, faith in Christ is just fine, but have you been baptized? Well, faith in Christ is just fine as far as it goes, but I mean, have you joined our denomination? Well, you know, faith in Christ is one thing, but... What version of the Bible do you read? Because that, you know, that certainly means whether we can have fellowship or not, right? Really? Faith in Christ is just fine, but do you speak in tongues? Hmm. Let me ask you a simple question. Is faith in Christ enough? It is. Faith in Christ is the only thing that gets any of us into heaven he led the perfect life he died on the cross to take our sins upon himself and he rose from the dead to ensure that all of his promises were going to come true the best is yet to come you're not you can't even imagine how glorious heaven's going to be it makes me giddy just thinking about it reading those closing passages in revelation you just go can't wait but until then there's work to be done and that means that I need to be filled with His Holy Spirit to do the will and work of God. I can't, there is no cruise control in the Christian walk. So you say, well, I got saved. I pushed that button. We're good. Check that box. We're good. I'm on cruise control. Mm, nope. If you're not spiritually on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ, you're moving backwards. There's no stasis in the Christian walk. If you're not growing, you're going. You want to be used by God? You want love and joy and peace and patience to be some of the defining elements of your life? You get as close to Jesus Christ as you can and let him reveal himself to you so that he might empower you. Because the days are short. Days are short. Come, Lord Jesus But he says in verse 3, Titus wasn't required to be circumcised. We can't add circumcision to this. As you can imagine, the Greeks were not standing in line to say, ooh, ooh, ooh. Could I be the first to be circumcised? Could we do it publicly maybe in church? Like baptism or something, you know? It can get pretty weird. But the Greeks, as you might imagine, weren't standing in line waiting for that. Why isn't Jesus enough? My faith in Christ, why isn't that enough? Why do we have to add Jewish things to that? We can get sucked into that legalism because to some of us it sounds spiritual. Verse 4, this matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our wrongs to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. That is slaves once again to the law of bondage that caused spiritual death and alienation from God. The law's standards were so high no one could meet them except a perfect and holy God who sent His perfect and holy Son to keep the law that you and I couldn't. The law served to condemn us, to drive us to the foot of the cross. The law was given so that we might all be convicted of our sins and show us the need of a Savior. That's all. The law doesn't save. That was not its purpose. It was meant to show us something about a perfect and holy God who gave us a perfect and holy law, but none of us kept it. None of us kept it. So He sent His own Son. To do something about that. Jesus kept the law perfectly for us. God didn't lower his standards to listen to the kingdom of heaven. He met those standards with the blood of his son. Remember John the Baptist said, Behold, the son of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's why Jesus came. That's why you and I need Jesus. To say it's Jesus plus something else is to trample underfoot the blood of the, of the risen Lord. Trample underfoot the blood of Jesus. That's, that's blasphemy. That's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit if you'd ever wonder what that is. It's rejection of His witness in and on your heart to convict us of sin and to bring us to faith and salvation in Christ Jesus. We were slaves to the law, but a law that could not save, it couldn't justify, and it could only condemn. We were slaves because the law could never set us free. we sang about freedom this morning, the law couldn't set you free. Jewish dietary laws... They can't set you free. Jewish legalism and festivals and rituals, they cannot save. So he says in verse 6, says, for those who seem to be important, uh, whatever they were makes no difference to me. He's not a man pleaser. He's not impressed with names and titles. He said, God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. Peter said, hey, it sounds great. It's Jesus, Jesus alone. It didn't say, oh, you by that... By the way, that Greek friend of yours, Titus, you ought to get him circumcised. Hmm. On the contrary, verse 7, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. Isn't that interesting? God took the most learned guy in the New Testament, this guy named Paul, his name had been changed from Saul, he leads the most rabbinically trained guy to the Gentiles and the most unlearned Jewish guy, Peter, a fisherman, he sends him to the Jewish intelligentsia to convince them of the simplicity of the gospel. And you go, boy, that's about as crossed as it gets. Yeah, that's God. He doesn't operate according to man's laws, thoughts, or, or what man thinks about it. Send the most educated guy to the most educated people. Well, God had a different plan for God. Verse 8 who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles, James, Peter, and John. There's a reason that Jesus kept those three closest to him at all times. These were the real pillars of, of the early church. They, they had a massive weight upon their shoulders as apostles that followed in the footsteps of Christ. And all they ask that I do, verse 10, is to continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Peter, James, and John, the early pillars of the church, they, without knowing it, really without even asking for it, God through them provides all of the affirmation of His calling that, that Paul needed. He just needed a, a little confirmation. You need that from time to time. He sought out the most godly to give him that, and that is exactly what God d- did. Uh, and, and they legitimized, if you will, Paul's special apostleship. People accused him, well, you weren't one of the original 12. Well, he would have been if they had waited long enough. Instead, when Judas Iscariot committed suicide, Peter, <laughs> the guy to whom nothing can happen fast enough, Decided, hey, we got to do something about this opening in our ranks. we got to do something right now, Pastor Jim. No, we don't. We need to pray. <laughs> we need to wait on the Lord. If they'd have waited five years, then Paul would have come along, and he would have neatly fit into that niche because they elected instead a man named Matthias. After electing him, then they prayed and says, well, that's a little bit like shutting the barn door after the horse is gone. Then they prayed and asked God to bless their bad decision. You ever done that? You want something so bad, you just go ahead and do it, and then you pray (laughs) and ask God to bless your mess. Sometimes he does, and sometimes he just points out the fact that maybe you made a bad choice. Verse 10, just remember the poor God had called Paul, and so all of the things that mark an apostle, the signs, wonders, and miracles uh, were done amongst them with great perseverance. Paul would share with the Corinthian believers. Again, in Acts chapter 14, it says, Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there boldly speaking for the Lord who confirmed the message of His grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. Might God ever want you to do that? What would your response be this morning? If just say, for the sake of argument, we had somebody sitting right there in that vacant chair in the front row. With a shriveled hand, deformed and shriveled and useless to him, and God put upon your heart, I want you to go up there, call the entire church's attention to it, and I want you to heal the man with the shriveled hand. Did you just feel that nudge of panic in your heart? I can't do that. God can. Are you willing? You'll be tested on this at some point in time in your life where something, I mean, radically weird is going to happen and you're going to feel so unworthy. Why? Because you are unworthy. But it doesn't mean that God can't use you. The Holy Spirit is inside of you. The same Holy Spirit that was in Jesus Christ. But your flesh may freak out when the day of opportunity shows up. I've been tested in that area before. Got a call from the hospital one time, me and Kathy didn't. This gal calls and says, I'm waiting in the emergency room at Memorial Hospital Central there, and I'm blind. I apparently have had a stroke, and I can't see. I'm totally blind. Would you come down here and pray for me? So Kathy's always got the anointing oil with her, so we went down there. and God just, I didn't know what God wanted to do, but he laid it on my heart, and he and, and the, the words that I shared with her, and it went something like this. You know, I, I said, God has no problem at all, and it's an easy thing for Him to heal your physical blindness. But a greater blindness is your spiritual blindness, it's keeping you out of the kingdom of heaven. There is no point in you being healed physically if you're not willing to be healed spiritually. I will not pray for you nor lay hands on you or anoint you with oil unless you're willing to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ for the rest of your life. Are you willing to do that? With my tears streaming down her face, she said, I will give my heart and life to Jesus Christ right here and right now. And she prayed, and she received Jesus Christ right, right then and there. It was, a, it was an amazing thing. And I said, okay, now the Lord wants me to anoint you with oil, according to the book of James, and, and we're going to see if God will heal your eyes now. And so we pulled out the anointing oil, and we prayed the prayer of faith and prayer of the righteous, like James talks about. It. And uh, I opened my eyes, and I said, can you see anything? And she said, nothing. I can, I can see nothing at all. I'm still blind. I said, well, we have done what Jesus asked us to do. And we did it right there publicly in the emergency room with another 100 people standing around watching what we're doing. And I said, let's give God the glory, honor, and praise and see what he's going to do. And we got in our car and started heading home. And halfway home, we got a phone call on Kathy's cell phone. And this gal was ecstatic. She says, I can see. I can see. I haven't seen the doctor yet, but I, I can see with my eyes. And I said... Praise God in heaven. Now, I don't know who the test was for, her or me. But I know this if I hadn't been willing, nothing would have happened. Was that a scary moment? Nobody wants egg on their face, nobody wants to be publicly humiliated or embarrassed. You've got to trust God in that moment. You've got to be obedient in that moment. Because I can tell you this, that window is about that wide. And if you don't act in obedience in that moment, it's going to come and go and leave you in the dust. And God will raise up somebody else to do the work that he called you to do. Somebody else will be picking up your slack because you didn't have enough faith to take God upon his word. When he revealed himself to you. We can all in our minds without it happening say, oh, yeah, I know I'd be willing. Really? It will happen at some point in time, and you will be put to the test. Will you lay hands on them? Will you pray for their healing? Do you have the faith to believe that God can heal? Will you anoint with oil? Will you be obedient to the Holy Spirit? And if you are, you may get to see miracles. And if you don't, you won't. It's so simple. God wants to use you. He loves you. You're His mouthpiece. You're His hands. You're His feet. You're His ears. You're His love. You are His compassion. But you have to be willing. And when that moment comes, and you will know it when it does, because it will scare you to death. You will never feel more inadequate in your whole life than at that moment. And it is a test from God Almighty to see if you have enough faith in him to step out and believe him for the miraculous. I wish the miracles happened all the time, but they happen as he deems, not me. But I will do my part. I will pray. I will anoint. I will do whatever asks me to do. Even if I wind up with egg on my face like I did walking out of Memorial, that day doesn't matter. It's not about me. It was a test for me for sure. I don't know what her test was, but she got saved. and I'm just tickled pink about that. She's at home with the Lord right now. That moment was a moment that the door into eternity was opened for her. I don't know how much more time you or I have left, but I can tell you this on the authority of God's Word. Time is short. Time is short. You seek the Lord with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength these last days, and you can be a part of the church that turns the world upside down. You don't have to be lukewarm or lay a It is entirely up to you. I'd rather step out in faith. I want to see God do miracles, man. I want to see lives changed. I want to see things turned upside down. I want to see the forces of darkness driven out by the legion. But that's all dependent upon the faith of the church. And we are the church. We are the church. You are the church. So I'm just, I, wanna, I, I just wanted to encourage you this morning. Let God use you. It starts with you hungry for simply God's presence. I'm going to ask. I'm going to seek. I'm going to knock. I want you, Lord. The other stuff will come with it. But as your faith grows, He will intentionally put you in places that you did not see coming. Places that may make you feel very uncomfortable, but He wants to be glorified. Our tendency is to explain everything in light of the natural, but we serve a supernatural God. The resurrection supernatural. Would you agree with that? That's kind of the basis of everything that Jesus is doing these last days in the church. I want to be a part of that. I don't want to be a part of a lukewarm, uncaring church that has no impact. My life is nothing but library paste and paper mache. I'd rather go to heaven and be with him. Paul will finish his testimony. Uh, not today. <laughs> I don't look at the clock back there. It says two forty-five, two fifty. 2 minutes and 53 seconds and it's counting down 1. So we are certainly not going to get to the last half of this chapter but that's your reading assignment. Your testimony is going to be different from Paul's. But I would like you to do me this favor for your sake not mine. Write down how you got saved. When, where, how? Where were you at what happened? Keep it short. In fact, if you can't read the whole thing in just three minutes, you already made it too long. The idea is not to bore people with, with, with the minutia of how bad you were before you got saved. That's not the point. The point of the exercise is just takes a few minutes to tell people this is what my life was like, this is how I got saved, and this is what my life's, my life's been like since. Write that down. That's your testimony, if we can call it that. Other people call it other things. But that's what Paul is sharing here. This is what happened to me. I used to be that guy. I'm not that guy anymore. Here's what happened. Here's how God called me into the ministry, called me to be an apostle. I didn't make any of this stuff up. This is what happened. You have a unique story of your own, but no less powerful. No less powerful well, say Pastor Jim, I don't have a testimony. I was born into a Christian home. I never remember a time I didn't love Jesus. That's your testimony. I'd give anything if that were my testimony. I grew up in a in a poor pagan household with an abusive alcoholic, and I'm going. I, when I got saved, I was jealous of those kids that grew up with Christian parents. That's a powerful testimony. I've always known Jesus. I've always loved Him. I'm so thankful that He's always loved me. So he has all of my heart and mind and soul and strength, and he has done amazing things in my life. That's your testimony. Don't be ashamed of it. That's one of the greatest testimonies there is. But write yours down this week. Keep it in your Bible because you will get the opportunity to share it. Not with me, not publicly in a church. No, I'm not going to, you know, do that to you. I'd love you too much to have you come up here and stand in front and watch your knees shake and sweat break out and you throw up on the floor. But write it down, who you were, how you got changed, and who you are now. That's what God has been doing for 2,000 years and what he wants to do afresh today in you and me and in the church. Write it down. Read the rest of the chapter. In fact, read all of chapter 2 again because the very best of it for me is what's going to happen at the very end of this chapter. Where Paul says, regardless of who I was in the past, this is who I am now. I am a child of God. I have been crucified with Christ. Yeah, hold your applause till next week because that is a blockbuster. You can, I mean, it's not cheating if you read ahead. So feel free, read ahead. But write down your testimony and make sure it doesn't take more than three minutes to share it. The idea is not to bore people into the kingdom of heaven. The idea is not to glorify your past, but to, in a brief fashion, tell them how God changed your life like he changed Paul's. Let's stand together and close in prayer, shall we, as the band comes up. We are your servants, Lord. We seek you with all of our heart. We ask that you would reveal yourself to us. We seek you to glorify yourself in and through us, a unique calling upon our lives, a unique gifting upon our lives. Show us, Lord. Put us in places where we can use the spiritual resources you've planted in each one of us. So we ask, we seek, we knock, Lord. I don't ever want to have church without in my mind's eye opening up all the doors, peeling back the roof and say, Lord Jesus, come into this place. Fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Speak to us in a variety of ways, Lord. We are right here and now open to dreams and visions and words spoken into our lives by mature and godly people. We are open to the work of you, Holy Spirit, of our Father. We are open, Heavenly Father, to your word and your promises. We are your children. And we'd ask, Heavenly Father, please speak for your servants' listen.